know, you can relapse proof your recovery, but you can't, you also have to be prepared for what happens if you do relapse. And I learned more in my relapse than I did in when I was in great recovery. I learned so much that that's what I really should have written the book about is what happened after um, relapse and what happened during that process and how incredibly hard it was to get back to a good state in recovery. Um, that, that was alarming to me. It was really scary because I thought, I thought at some point I was just bulletproof that I wasn't going to fall off my pink cloud of recovery. And when I fell, I fell really hard. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. Today you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Christina Fasonic. Christina has written um, something in the range of 37 books. Um, yeah, true story. Three of which are about her um, journey through binge eating disorder. So that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Before we get started, I just want to make this point clear that I've suffered from anorexia and Christina suffered from binge eating disorder. Those are very different illnesses. And so taking what Christina says in reference to binge eating disorder, and then usually I can reference that to the difference that I felt in anorexia, but I really want you to understand that anorexia and binge eating disorder are different illnesses. And it's often a fear that who a person who is in recovery from anorexia has, that they will develop binge eating disorder. And because binge eating in recovery from anorexia is very common, and in fact, arguably a really important part of recovery for some people, a lot of people, when they get to that binge eating stage, panic and think that they have suddenly developed binge eating disorder. And that's absolutely not the case. Although recovery binges present as a binge, they're not binge eating disorder. These are really different illnesses. In my own recovery from anorexia, I binge ate, recovery binged a lot. And it stops. It stopped as my body was ready and as my body was ready to stop intaking a huge amount of food. It didn't last forever. It felt like it was going to and it was really scary. But it stopped when my body felt that it was time for my hunger to return to a normal level. And that's different than binge eating disorder. And so anybody who's listening to this who has anorexia, because I know that is the majority or the largest section of my audience at the moment, just really keep that in your mind. We are not talking, and Christina is not talking about you. She's talking about herself, and she's talking about binge eating disorder. And if you're in the recovery stage, and you're binge eating in recovery, that's okay. That doesn't mean you have binge eating disorder. <laughs> okay, now, so now that I've made that clear, the first question that I asked Christina is to tell me a little bit about herself. Here's the podcast. Well, I am a, an associate professor of English at California University of Pennsylvania, and I've been a professor for 20 years this year, and I am the author at this point of 37 books, and the last three of them were 37? related to... Yes. And the, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of books. <laughs> I'm a bit prolific, yes. Um, 
And the last three books, though, focused on binge eating disorder, including the memoir, uh, The Optimistic Food Addict, Recovering from Binge Eating Disorder. And I live in West Virginia with my five-year-old son and my husband and our cats. So that's a little bit about me, background-wise. You mentioned that your last three books have been about binge eating disorder. Um, right. So tell me a little bit about your experience there and, and how that all came about. Well, in, um, in 2013, I was at the point where I felt that I longer stand my obsessive thoughts and compulsive eating behaviors. I had, of course, throughout my life since before I was 11 years old, um, had dieted, had done every diet in the universe to try to weigh less, get fit, fit an image, whatever, and none of it ever worked. But this time was completely different. I felt for the very first time that this had nothing to do with my weight, but everything to do with my peace of mind. I felt that I was a prisoner in my own head and I didn't have any control over my thoughts and behaviors and it was frightening. And so I didn't really understand what was happening. I had dismissed the idea that I had an eating disorder for years because when what I knew about eating disorders and what the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, told us about eating disorders is that you were either anorexic, bulimic, or some kind of eating disorder otherwise not specified. And I didn't see myself in either of those or any of those um, definitions or terms. So in 2013, as my great luck and great fortune would have it, that is the year that binge eating disorder became an official mental health disorder, according to the DSM-5. So one night, uh, I had just had it. I couldn't take the um, anguish of this anymore. So I went online and I found the National Eating Disorders Association. I messaged them and they set me up with a navigator, which is a person that helps you figure out how to get help for yourself. And from then on, um, I entered recovery. I found a therapist and of course, being a writer, turned to writing as uh, one of my main tools in therapy. How did you feel when you realized that you actually had an eating disorder? On one hand, I thought, you know, I was in disbelief still, like I, I couldn't quite accept it. And on the other hand, I was entirely re relieved because I thought, finally, I realized that it's not my lack of control or my lack of willpower or my lack of drive, but this is a real mental health disorder, just like other uh, mental health issues that I suffer from, like depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And to finally make that connection and understanding seem like a relief because, and I've said this many times to people to put it in context, how can someone like me who grew up in abject poverty in a trailer in West Virginia, who dropped out of high school at one point and then went back, went to, on to college, got a PhD and has written all these books and published all these books. How can I be, how can I believe about myself that I suffer from a lack of willpower or strength? And yet at the same time, I was defeated constantly by grilled cheese sandwiches. I mean, how, how does this work? So there had to be something more to it than simply uh, a lack of drive or commitment to myself. And how do you think that that understanding, that understanding, hey, this isn't anything to do with a lack of willpower, but is actually a form of mental illness. How did that 
help you take action in terms of treatment and starting on that path? Well, for me, I realized that, okay, so this isn't about following a diet. This is about getting mental help. And what that meant, I wasn't quite sure when I started the recovery process, but I did see a, an eating disorder specialist and I still see her all these years later. And, um, I also used, uh, Prozac for a while, which is one of the few drugs that's used in the treatment of binge eating disorder. And it worked for about a year, but I never would have, um, sought therapy or, uh, pharmaceutical treatment for this disorder if I didn't realize that that's what it was. I'm, I'm certain that I would have just continued dieting and failing and exercising and failing and doing all the other strategies that are real, really weight loss oriented and not recovery oriented. I don't usually like to butt into these conversations, but I'm going to do that here just to emphasize what Christina just said there. It's very important that the things that she had been trying were weight loss orientated, not recovery orientated. That's pretty fantastic. Great observation. I asked Christina to tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I've become in the past probably couple years of my recovery, a major advocate for um, being healthy at your in your own size. I realized after going through the process first of recovery and then re relapsing in that recovery, how incredibly difficult it is to shed the and I think that this is true, the sort of addiction to compulsive dieting and compulsive attempts at weight loss. Um, the difference for me between weight loss uh, oriented behaviors and recovery behaviors is that when I'm in weight loss mode, like I was for over 30 years, it was more about external um rewards than internal ones. And so even at my lowest weight during weight, and I've lost a hundred pounds four times, um, and gained it all back and then some, but in those moments when I found myself maybe at an after weight instead of a before weight, I wasn't necessarily healthier mentally. And I can tell you that working on my inner self and my mental, um, challenges is far more rewarding and the exterior of myself might not reflect the healing process and how well I've done in recovery. And I, I just, I won't go back to it again. I will not diet ever again. That's wonderful to hear. What, um, when you say, so, um, focusing on your internal self, can you give me any examples of things that really helped you? Well, in addition to writing and writing often, writing the book, um, writing regularly in a journal, being mindful has been absolutely essential to everything that I do. And for me, being mindful means waking up in the morning with intention. How am I going to spend my day? Also, the first thing I think of when I wake up, when I open my eyes is gratitude. How, you know, what am I grateful for every day? Also, for me, that means when I sit down to a meal, you know, limiting distractions, enjoying what I'm eating, thinking about it, uh, instead of simply just eating in front of the TV or <clears throat> one of my worst binge behaviors was eating in my car on the way home from work to release stress because I have a one hour commute one way. And when I would get in my car, I would just eat the entire hour all the way home. 
as a way to deal with the stress in my life instead of um, exercising or calling a friend or watching a funny movie or reading a book or something. Other strategies I've used in my recovery, in addition to um, therapy and trying to work on some issues and uh, dealing with depression and my anxiety, is when I formed this group online called Food Addiction Recovery, which now numbers 9,000 people. And so being there and helping other people navigate through um, what I still think is a broken system for helping people deal with binge eating disorder, doing that and being an advocate for them and creating free courses and literature and pointing them in the right direction to find um, support systems outside of our group has been absolutely instrumental in me recover in my recovery journey and and probably in in other people's as well um so that example that you gave about um eating on the way home your hour commute on your way home from work i'm interested to know how you actually because having the intention i'm not going to eat on my way home in the car is all very well but often when it comes down to it we can't execute that the change in behavior is too difficult if there isn't something else that can either take that behavior's place in stress reduction. So did you use anything in those instances to help you relieve the stress from work on the way home that wasn't eating? Yes. Uh, for When I realized what a massive problem it was, and I was probably um, consuming thousands of calories on my way home, because if you think about the kinds of foods that you can eat while driving, they're not necessarily or usually healthy foods or helpful foods. Um, so at first I made a compromise to myself. I'm like, I don't think I can quit doing this cold Turkey. So the idea was that in the morning when I left for work, I would take with me a prepackaged snack that I could. And once that snack was gone on my way home, then that was it. Um, and I also said, okay, you can have the snack, but you can't stop at the the store and buy some type of junk food or other food. You have to just have this snack. After about six weeks or so, that worked really well, and I eliminated that behavior, and I still don't engage in it. So in addition to sort of stepping down, going from eating whatever I wanted on that one-hour commute to eating a pre-selected or pre-sized snack, the next step I did was try to figure out what you said. How do you replace then that behavior with something that also helps reduce stress? And for me, that was um, downloading a bunch of books and listening to them. One of the things that happened to me and that, that happens to most parents, I think, after you have children, you don't have a lot of time to read, even though that's my job is to read books. Um, so I downloaded a bunch of different books and I just started enjoying them on the way home, which was an incredibly positive way to release stress. Also, I would call people on the way home because I have hands-free calling in my car, and that really helped too because I usually didn't want to be crunching on food while I was talking to somebody on the phone. So those are two things that really helped me deal with and pass that one-hour time frame after working when everybody is usually tired and stressed out from the day. Uh, listening to audiobooks and calling friends and family members was really has been really helpful. And I'm I imagine that that it it worked because it was also part of a bigger picture of a realization that you come to and and something that you were trying to do. Um, and the reason I say that is because 
say, you know, portioning out the snack that you can take and, and things like that really probably isn't so much different from just dieting or trying to restrict and trying not to eat. Um, but this time it felt different to you. Oh, yes. And I, and I equate it to this because sometimes I, I don't um, consume high sugar foods because I know they they do have an effect on my brain. There's I can tell a difference and I want to eat not just whatever portion I have, but everybody else's portion. And then it sets off this cataclysm of crazy behavior around food. And I tell people that the difference between that and restriction is like when I don't consume dark chocolate or caffeine because I have a history of migraines, changing that, eliminating, um, those triggers, those very known triggers, the same thing with MSG and aspartame, I know without question because of personal history that if I consume those things, I will get a migraine. I don't want to get a migraine. Migraines are horrible. They make me vomit. They give me a headache. Um, they make me see things funny and different and I can't drive when I have a migraine. So I think of when I do make decisions about things that I don't want to eat, it's based not on this is going to make me gain weight or I need to do this for some moral reason, but I'm not going to eat this food because I know that it has negative, immediate negative health consequences for my mental health, not so much my, my physical health. And, um, so how long do you think that it took you after, um, making the realization that you have, and I think you, you, um, I think you say that um, you see food addiction as a subset of binge eating disorder. Yeah, and I've come to see that. I, you know, at this point in time, what we know scientifically is that there are foods that we're made to crave. Um, that they will tell you that there are food scientists who um, create and and put chemicals in foods that make us crave them. And there, the literature is there, and a number of people have written about that. And I think that some people who are predisposed to addiction have a harder time than other people dealing with those foods and those chemicals that are made for the normal population to eat more than one of the, whatever food it is. Um, so there's that issue. But I know also that the current sort of treatment at this point for binge eating disorder, as new as that information is, is intuitive eating, which I completely understand and actually practice many of the precepts of that um, tool in my recovery. But I, I, I believe, based on experience, based on the scientific literature that I've read, and based on the population in my group of almost 9,000 people, that some of us are food addicts, some of us are binge eaters, and some people like me are both food addicts and binge eaters, which means that our recovery method is far more complicated than if we had one or the other. And so when it comes to, for example, food addiction, the main course of treatment for that is abstinence from trigger foods. But intuitive eating says, no, you can't abstain from anything because that will trigger you to binge. And so what do you do when you have food addiction and binge eating disorder? What does your recovery look like? And that's something that I've struggled with for the past four years. Yeah, I find that really interesting. And I do think that um, because I, I work as a recovery coach for most actually people with anorexia. And I do think that every single person that I have worked with, I have to work with as an individual. There are different facets. There are different um, 
things that come in like you, you like you said um that can look and feel like restriction to one person might not look and feel like restriction to another person and it's really yeah. finding the balance within that individual that is critical actually um than having rules that supposedly work for everybody oh i agree 100 percent, and that that's why in my group we don't subscribe to nor do we reject people following different methods of recovery simply because if there was one answer for all of us, then I would be the very first person out there promoting it. I'd get a billboard and run a radio ad and build a website and tell the world whatever that one answer was, but that's just not reality. When you think about um, the large proportion of binge eaters also have comorbidities with mental illness like I do, like depression, anxiety, PTSD, that makes it even more complicated to find a solution for that person. Yeah, absolutely true um, with anorexia and um, the comorbid <laughs> disorders. Yeah. Usually it's just like, it's finding out how much of that is actually, because with especially anorexia, a lot of the um, symptoms of starvation are depression, irritability, um, OCD, but some people who present with those that had those pre-eating disorder, they actually have those separately as well, which can just turn into when the eating disorder anxiety ramps up, usually do the other comorbid anxiety related disorders or depression, um, which, again, is something that has to be taken into account in recovery because you know that when that person starts weight restoring, their OCD is going to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, that's just how it works because weight restoration creates anxiety however usually if we can get through that until the other side all of those things then reduce but it's getting there and also having those plans in place and that awareness in, in place that is going to get worse before it gets better but just keep going it doesn't mean it's going to stay bad it doesn't mean it's going to be this bad forever and I don't think that message is is often put across a lot which is, again, why I like to talk about the things that get worse, because I think you have to prepare people for them. I, I agree 100%. And, I, and years ago, back when I was doing my doctoral work, I wrote about that. And there's this wonderful writer, Joan Jacobs Brumberg, who wrote The Body Project. And one of the things she said was she was so frustrated that, and she was specifically talking about anorexics. And she said, when we read the literature of people who... Um, write about and publicly talk about their disorder, it's always the same narrative. Uh, here's how it developed. Here's what it looked like while I had it. And now I'm all better now. When in reality, that is simply not real. That's not really how recovery works. I mean, I suppose there are people who go from point A to point B smoothly, but I have never personally found those people. I've never met one either. And I've, I've, I've met quite a fair few people with eating disorders at this point. Yeah. I haven't found that, that unicorn yet. <laughs> and the, oh, exactly. And I, and I know I want to find those people, but that is the predominant um, story. The message that we hear is that you go from point A to point B and everything's good now. When in reality, um, for some of us, it can be a, a lifelong struggle, especially those of us who deal with comorbidities with mental health. And then you bring in like with binge eaters, I think it's two thirds of all binge eaters are obese. So on the one hand, you want to make sure that, um, the physical health is restored as well. But then 
how do you do that when this person might have um, an OCD issue when it comes to like watching calories or counting fat? I mean, it becomes this complicated thing that can't be, um, it can't be linear. I just don't believe it. For me, the, the biggest problem I had was dealing with relapse after being in solid recovery for 18 months. And, and I wish that I would have been better prepared for that. And that's one thing I try to tell anyone that I talk to who's struggling in recovery. Like you said, this will, um, this will get better, but it's going to be bad for a while. And I wish that I would have understood that better because it made my relapse and then rebounding from that relapse that much more difficult. So do you think that because you didn't know that when you relapsed, you just sort of thought this is the end? Yes. Well, I thought when it happened, I thought, um, here we go again. I failed again. I mean, because if you think I, I had, you know, lost a hundred pounds four times and, and here I am again in, in relapse and I've started to binge again. What, I, I, there's no way I'm going to beat this. I'm not, I'm not going to find my way back out of this dark hole. Uh, and then I realized after a while that I just had to keep going and I had to try a different strategy that, and I, and I think in addition to finding different strategies for different people, that there's different strategies for different points that you are in your recovery, you know, a recovery plan that might've worked at the beginning might not necessarily work later. Yeah. And I actually always say that to people as well. It's like, right, we're going to try this, this day and you give me feedback and we see how it works. And I actually feel that where I have, um, I guess, feel that I've had the most success in recovery coaching is developing a system where really it's, it's like project management and problem solving every day because the problems change every day and the, the plan can change every day. And what is the most crucial part is building up the trust between me and somebody else so that they actually are really telling me what's going on in their head. And then it really does turn into, well, we're, we're intelligent people. We can work this out. Like we can solve this problem rather than, this is the end, or you shouldn't have done that, or that shouldn't have happened. I do think that everything that happens along a recovery path teaches all of us something, all of us involved, and we learn from that, and then we change something, and we see if it's any better or any worse, and then we learn from it, and we change something. And I do think that approach comes, because I used to work in tech, and that's sort of how they approach software development. Um, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you change something every day, if you, like little tweaks every day. So nothing gets so far along the line that it's actually turned into a behavior of itself or it's turned into a problem of itself. It's like you just change things and you don't get attached to this is the way this has to be and this is the way that worked for the last 20 people that I work with so it has to work for you. You just change, you know, all right, we pivot, we change. Um, That's a really great way of putting it because I think you're right that sometimes people will have great success with like um, a Fitbit or uh, some kind of exercise tool, but then suddenly they become obsessed with it. And it becomes, instead of a a positive tool, it becomes a negative tool that makes their eating disorder behavior and their mental health worse. And so I I agree with you. You have to be aware and honest with yourself and whoever you're working with to say, I think this is a problem now and, and to be able to let it go. Yeah. And it's the, exactly the same, it, but the, uh, the other way around <laughs> when I'm working with people with, with anorexia. One thing that one week or at the first stages of recovery can actually help them increase their intake and get rid of some restriction can quickly 
turn into a, re a place of restriction in itself. And so it's just being able to be really quick. All right, we're not doing that anymore. We're changing. Um, let's try this method. Um, but having said that, I am interested in your opinion, um, just from yourself, your observations, people that um, you know that you say are in the the group, um, and what you've learned from from them and interactions with them. Are there any things that seem to generally kind of be a good start or that work for most people? For me, I think what I see most commonly help people move towards better health, better mental health especially, is being mindful. That That is such the key because most of us who binge eat are doing it to escape reality. In a sense, it's not just about controlling our bodies, which I think other eating disorders are about as well, but it's about escaping to someplace else. They can't deal with their messy homes or their bad relationships or the history of abuse or being triggered um, with flashbacks or uh, dealing with depression that has never been properly dealt with before. And so there's this escape. But if you make yourself sit with yourself and think clearly and be mindful of everything you do, not just um, your eating behaviors, but just how you spend your day. One of the things that I recommend people to do is to keep a journal, a non-judgmental journal that just details how they're spending their time, when they're eating, who they're eating with, not so much how much they're eating, but how they're feeling about their day and different points in their day so that they can actually get to know who they are. For me, the pathway of recovery has been a journey of learning who I am. I entered recovery at 39 and I kind of knew some things about myself, but there's so much I've uncovered in the past four years. So I, I think that being mindful daily has been, um, an essential tool for me and for other people. Because when I ask people, have you sat down with yourself and really thought about how you spend your time and what you're thinking about and what you're doing? Um, within a few days, they, they already can spot ways in which they're using food to escape things that they don't like or things that are painful in their lives. That's probably one of the tools. Also, I think, um, Seeing a therapist, if you find the right therapist or coach or someone that can work with you is really important because they can help you see things that you cannot see, either behaviors, distorted thinking, or things that you just can't see. You need to have, I think, another pair of eyes or an objective, a more objective um, view into who you are and what you're doing and your behaviors and thoughts around food. Yeah, I think... Um really good points and can actually you know both for whether it's anorexia bulimia binge eating disorder food addiction both of those things is you know like you, i feel that you kind of can't go wrong there unless you get the wrong um eating disorder therapist or coach or somebody oh, else yeah. not exactly up to date that can be devastating um but, Agreed. But, you know. Family doctors aren't always the best choice either because when I went to my family doctor and said, I don't, please don't weigh me today because I'm in recovery for an eating disorder, he looked at me and said, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> and I thought, well, why didn't you tell me? I know. You know, I've been coming to the same doctor for six years and... 
Yeah, um, I was presenting at an emaciated state at my doctor and nobody for a long time mentioned the word eating disorder. And even when they did, it was focusing on, did your parents abuse you? And I said, no. And they're like, oh, well, you can't have an eating disorder then because they're a result of trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even get me started. I know. um, we, all we can do is hope that things change and work to get them changed. Um, yes. I think your, your, your point was, as you, and you actually said, find the right um, eating disorder therapist, recover coach, like good dietitian can be incredible. Um, and really, um, I do think that for the majority of people, that can be the, the, that externalization can be the real turning point there to help them actually see the disorder is separate from themselves and therefore start to understand if it's something is separate from themselves, how, how not to indulge in those behaviors or how to at least start to um, work um, in the opposite direction, in the direction that they want to be going. Absolutely. And having, having an, another informed um, perspective, somebody who's seen this before, worked with this population before, I mean, that, that changed a lot of things for me and my therapist, the best thing she ever did for me and what she continues to do for me is help restore my self-esteem. And we're working on, I think the hardest part of recovery from any eating disorder is body image issues. And I'm still struggling with that and we're working together on it, but it seems like the biggest mountain to climb in the whole endeavor, at least for me. Have there been anything that uh, you guys have worked on that you think have helped or are beginning to help or you think have been more effective? Well, I think that working on, um, being more body positive and recognizing the strengths of my body as opposed to what's wrong with it has been, um, incredibly useful being able to see myself as, Oh, you've been able to do all these things and you couldn't have done those things without your body. I think that's been very helpful plus writing about my body in more positive ways and actually having my son um, who loves my body just as it is probably more than I could ever expect from anybody has been really um, essential for me in terms of changing how I see my body and how I relate to it. Yeah. And it's like you said, this is one of the things that doesn't happen overnight. It takes so much work. Um, but it's, I do think it's so worth it though. Oh yes. Um, but it, again, that's, that's another thing that doesn't, that's, that's not a magic cure that takes a lot of work and it takes consistent work and continual work um, and commitment to it. Oh yes. And and then when you, uh, at least for me, what happened after, I think probably the sixth or seventh month I was in recovery, um, uh, depression showed up. And that was the depression that was being hidden by my eating disorder. When I'm inactive um, binging, I have really bad anxiety. And that's partly because of excessive sugar consumption. Because I can tell the difference. It raises my heart rate. Um, I start to feel really sick. And the next thing you know, too much of that. And I, I start feeling anxious. And then the whatever it was that made me binge in the first place is present. And this becomes this craziness, um, that I have trouble dealing with. And so, um, when the depression showed up, I was absolutely stunned because I'd never thought of myself as being depressed, but it turns out, uh, look back at my history 
and uh, with with behavior and mental issues, of course, I had a history of depression, and it was being masked by binging. And so was that something that you then had to treat or um, work on separately? Uh, we worked on that, yes. It was a separate issue because uh, first I, I had to accept that this was what was happening, and then I had to figure out, well, is this a chemical imbalance in my brain? Is this from uh, something else? Is it situational? What's what's happening? And then, of course, I knew I had PTSD, and but I thought that since I'd been in therapy for so long and I hadn't been triggered in years... I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe that's gone. Maybe I've learned how to manage it. But my PTSD was triggered, and that's what ultimately led to my relapse. Right, yeah. And um, so, again, just being able to know about these things, almost sort of half expect them to come up in recovery somewhere along the line, could be really helpful in um helping that uh, helping with those those relapses I think or helping them not happen or at least being informed and knowing what's going on yeah or and I and I always say you know you can relapse proof your recovery but you can't you also have to be prepared for what happens if you do relapse and I learned more in my relapse than I did in when I was in great recovery I learned so much that that's what I really should have written the book about is what happened after um, relapse and what happened during that process and how incredibly hard it was to get back to a good state in recovery. Um, that that was alarming to me. It was really scary because I thought I thought at some point I was just bulletproof that I wasn't going to fall off my pink cloud of recovery. And when I fell, I fell really hard. I don't think I don't think bulletproof exists um, no. with eating disorders. I mean, they're a mental illness, so they'll always they'll be there. We just put them in remission, I think, and we we deal with them and we manage them. You know, ongoing project management. Um, so, um, when you say you you should have written a book about that one, um, tell me tell me why you found that so insightful. Well, I guess. When when I relapsed, first of all, I didn't expect it at all, which is remarkable to me, given that my my history indicates that certainly things like that can happen. But it's like I I felt so strong and so good in my recovery that I just couldn't imagine that relapse was possible. But what I learned during that relapse was not only was it possible, but that when it does happen, um if you're not prepared for it, then you no, you not only return to harmful behaviors and thoughts, but it's actually worse, or at least it was for me. And also during relapse, I learned to be a little more kind to myself. I learned to also be kinder to others who had um, gone into relapse after a long period of time. I know a woman who was in excellent recovery for about 20 years and then went into relapse and she still can't find her way out. And when I was doing really well in recovery, I was perplexed. I'm like, you, you have to do these things. Why, if you do those things, why aren't you in recovery? And then I realized this is an ongoing mental health issue. And that's what 
really what relapse taught me was how to be kinder to myself and kinder to others and to not adhere strictly to a recovery plan. Recognize that what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, today this plan that I have that's been working for six months might work, but tomorrow I could get up, something could change and it doesn't work. And I need to be able to act right away to try to figure out what, what does work now. Yeah. And so on the, on the positive side, um, how did you get yourself out of that, that really difficult spot? Well, I, I gave up, um, all of my preconceived notions on what I thought worked for me for recovery. I looked at all of it and realized, well, maybe that doesn't work because I'm not the same person that I was when I entered recovery. I'm not in the same space that I was. So who am I right now, right at this moment? What are my weaknesses? And what are my strengths? How can I get a plan that actually works for me? But that took um, another year in order for me to figure out that that's what I needed to do, that I couldn't keep trying to use the tools exactly the way I'd used them before because I was a different person then than I was in when I was in relapse. Yeah, and I love that point. You're a different person. You're also in a different body, most of us. When oh, yeah. We're in recovery, we're in a completely different body than we are when, when, we're, when we're sick. Yes, absolutely. And that doesn't just bring... Um, you know, that's not just sort of external things. That That's a different sort of, all the systems work differently. I mean, I'm, again, talking from my experience of anorexia, it was a very different person with, with hormones than for the for the 10 years that that system was completely shut down. Um, I had a lot of different feelings, a lot of different experiences in my body that were sometimes exciting, sometimes terrifying, and it was just this is okay. This is, this is a completely different body I'm operating in right now. Yes. Yes. And that, that's the way it is for binge eaters too, because we, we have more energy. Um, and you're right. Our, our bodies work differently. They function differently and it is, it's overwhelming and it's scary. And then you find yourself in relapse, but you still have this body that evolved during when your recovery was in a good space. And so what do you, what is this? I mean, it's so overwhelming. And, and my therapist was so useful in trying to guide me through that, but it really required me to say, okay, you are what you are right now. Who are you right now? And how can, you know, you figure out a plan that works to dig you out of this hole that you find yourself in. Um, so Christina, I'd, I'd love for you to just give us, uh, the lowdown of, of your book. Um, this this one of the three is the only one that's actually a memoir. The other two are workbooks that are, are supposed to be used in conjunction with your recovery plan to get you to, to get the person using the books to rethink uh, how they feel about their bodies. On one page, there's a scale, and I asked the, the, um, the person using the workbook to write on the scale all the things that, that's, that the, the scale makes them feel. And then I asked them to rip it out and burn it as a way of symbolizing. Because for most of us with, with binge eating disorder, and I think it's true with other eating disorders, the scale becomes a negative thing in our lives. It, it is not, for the vast majority of us, positive in any way. And so this is a way to kind of let go of the hold that it has over us. So that's sort of what the workbooks do. But 
my memoir really focuses on the role that binge eating disorder has had in my life. Because when you have a mental health disorder like this, it it's not just about your weight, how it affects your weight or what you eat, but it affects every area of your life. And I can trace this back to um, before I was even two years old, to the role that food and eating played in my life. And so I was really set on writing a book that looked at recovery from an eating disorder realistically instead of uh, with a formula like I was talking about earlier. I didn't want to write another book because there are so many on the market that say, well, here's what it was like when I was sick. Here's how this happened. And here's the journey I went through. And now today I'm better. Let me tell you all about it. Um, instead, I wanted to write a book that was in progress. Where am I in the progress of recovery. I talk about um, slips and relapse behavior in that book. I talk about um, why it's important to be realistically optimistic because that's one of my character traits is to be optimistic that the sun is going to come up tomorrow, but how that, that has been dangerous to me during my life, especially when it comes to having an eating disorder. So I encourage people who read the book to think about my path in recovery and think about their own in terms of realistic optimism that yes, you can get better and every day can be better, but there's also the possibility of relapse and slips along the way. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find out more? They can go to optimisticfoodaddict.com and you'll find my blog there, which is um, really the roots of how the book got started. And I publish probably a couple of brand new essays every month. And you can find contact information there. There's a link there for um, my Facebook group, Food Addiction Recovery. There's also information there on what to do if you're new to this and some organizations that you can contact because in the end, I'm a doctor, but not that kind. I have a PhD, but it's in English. And so I can't really diagnose people or treat people, but I can definitely hook them up with resources that can help them in their recovery. Big thank you to Christina for taking the time to talk to me. What I really like about Christina is she found that she had a problem and she tried to find some community support around it. And she discovered that there wasn't really very much. And I think that's probably because when people think of eating disorders, they think of, well, anorexia um, and potentially bulimia as well. And then they don't really think about the wider scope of the subsets of those disorders, the restrictive eating disorders. And they really don't tend to think about binge eating disorder. Although binge eating disorder is the most prevalent of all eating disorders, it's still not really talked about very much. And so Christina went out there and she created that community and really focusing on binge eating disorder, recovery and treatment for that and helping people find their path to treatment, guiding them in the right direction, as she said. Because the treatment and the requirements of treatment for binge eating disorder are different from those of anorexia nervosa, bulimia and other subsets. While the illnesses have similarities, 
and they can have really big behavioral similarities as well you know like i said in recovery from anorexia i went through periods of binge eating but those were very different from the sort of binge eating that a person with binge eating disorder does because i was restricting as well and typically a person with binge eating disorder doesn't restrict and i think that people often just think well, a person with binge eating disorder, you know, like they just need to stop. <laughs> In the same way, people told me, a person with anorexia, I just needed to start eating. And it really isn't that simple. But each person has their own specific and different recovery path. Because there are so many environmental, behavioral, genetic influences in mental illnesses, and then with eating disorders, put on top of that, the fact that we have to eat and then we get all these messages about body image and what we should be eating and clean eating and what's right and what's wrong to eat. It's, it's um, incredible that anybody can see past all of those external influences to work out what's actually going on in their own mind and body. So treating people as individuals, looking at what's going on in that person, what other disorders do they have? What other influences do they have? What other stresses do they have? What's their lifestyle like? What's the genetic influences like? What works for them? And I really admire people like Christina who help other people and guide them just by their own experience as to their own recovery paths. So I'm pretty excited um, about the meal support service that launched in February um, for people, adults with eating disorders. I'm even more excited to tell you that we do have a support service for people suffering from binge eating disorder. And that can look like, as Christina was saying, you know, when she had certain times of day, like that drive home where she knew she would binge eat and she was doing that really to deal with the stress from work and how ADRA meal support can work for a person with binge eating disorder is actually giving them a distraction activity or somebody to talk to, somebody that understands and doesn't judge and knows what it's like and just some, a friendly ear to, to help them through those periods and to give them the support that they need, whatever they're working through, just to listen and encourage and so that they're not doing it alone. And that's what we're offering with Ardra. So if you are interested in that, I will link to that support option in the show notes. I will also link to Christina's books, plural, because she's written so many of them. Um, and I'll see if I can link to or get some information on the Facebook group that she talked about for people with binge eating disorder. Thank you for listening.